0: Welcome to the Monday edition of Passion Tonight. It is our vagina dialogue, something that we uh, do every month here on the program. And joining us today, well, we have our regular Dr. Angela Lee, who is a resident in obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Toronto. She joins us monthly now. Uh, but as a special guest, we also have Wendy Strager. She is the educator, an educator and founder of Good Clean Love, a seller of uh, intimacy products and, and promote, a promotion for female sexual well-being. Welcome both to the program. Yes, yeah, thank you for having me. Great thank having Carol. you. Great to be back. Wonderful. So uh, one thing we wanted to talk to Wendy about, and uh, Wendy and I had a conversation on on her podcast about this, and we don't often hear the words uh, vaginal biomes. Uh, we hear about gut biomes. Um, why not? Why why don't we hear that term much, Wendy?
2: Um, you know, I think it's sort of like what happened in the 1980s about the gut biome. You know, before that, we really didn't understand the stomach as its own ecosystem. And right. it took a really long time for a lot of people to get on board, including physicians. And I think we're at that cusp right now about understanding sort of the vaginal health ecosystem. In fact, as an ecosystem, unique and yet also very similar to the gut bio. Um, and yet, you know, I spend a lot of time... Uh, doing a lot of education with physicians and other people about it because it hasn't really been part of the lexicon that uh, a lot of physicians were trained in. Um, I got to learn about this from a biophysicist at Johns Hopkins. Um, And so, you know, I think it's relatively new science, this idea that there's there's a balance that we're always trying to maintain in all of the biomes in our body, right? And I think that this discovery will help us think about all the places where we have mucous membrane that's functioning mm. as, a, as, a, as a way for us to receive and perceive the outside world. They all have a different kind of lactobacilli, they all have a different you know, different species of defense mechanism, but they okay. function very similarly.
0: So I want to ask, actually, uh, Dr. Lee, um, in, your, in your education, in, in especially in gynecology, um, how much work or how, how much did you learn about vaginal biomes? How much is this talked about?
1: You know, I think in a lot of my education, the vaginal microbiome has sort of been referred to as this entity that we don't actually know a ton about. So it's definitely an evolving area of research. Um, But we definitely know it exists, and we definitely know it's extremely important in maintaining vaginal and vulvar health, um, particularly because um, any disruptions that happen can predispose you to conditions like yeast infections um, and bacterial vaginosis. So um, I definitely agree that we need to learn more about it, and I think it is an emerging area of research, um, but unfortunately not a ton is known currently.
0: Right. So, yeah, um, it, Wendy, how did you... I, I would had just you... add to that, that
2: it's sort of really remarkable how little research we have in a kind of general way about women's vaginal and sexual health. I mean, it, it's, it's actually sort of astounding to me. I'm married to a physician, but I am not a physician myself. <clears throat> I think I'm like pretty curious. Um, mm. But when we ask simple questions like you know, what is the optimal balance of salts in the vaginal mucus? Mm. You would think that that would be something that somebody had studied and that (sighs) we could establish a normative, here's the optimal salt balance, right? It might be something that that we would look at if people had recurring infections. But in fact, you know, that's something that we're working on patenting and really the research has never been done. So it's Hmm. pretty... I mean, and it's not actually super complicated research to do, but I just feel like, you know, one of the things that the biophysicist taught me early on is that the very first time in the United States that fe- female sexual health research was ever funded was just as recent as 1992, the first time many women were on the nat- National Institute of Health Board. And so when you consider that, we have a lot of things to learn. Many, well, many things that we have yet to, to learn about. Absolutely.
0: Women's health. And we've only in the last couple of decades learned about mm-hmm. women's sexual desire and how different it is from men. We've only uh, and I'm talking recent, meaning the you know, the last few decades, learned about the structure of the clitoris. We know so much right. more about male sexual health than we totally. uh, than we do about female sexual health.
2: Yeah, and I mean I remember actually When I had started this company, and, you know, it's sort of like an embarrassing story, but, you know, here I'm like 37 or 39 years old, and I have always done podcasting and radio interviews, and and I would learn so much from these guests. And it was the first time I ever learned about the clitoral organ system, which Mm. totally for the first time in my late 30s, I understood why when I had a clitoral orgasm, I suddenly was having spasms at the legs of the orgasm. Whether you consider that a G-spot or not, we don't have to have that debate. But there was definitely something that it was turning on and all the ways that that enervation happened throughout the vaginal walls, I never mm-hmm. learned anything about that before. I was like in my late 30s.
0: Well, none of us It was did. like a serious aha <laughs> moment. You know? Even the, Dr. Lee, I, I'm not even sure the new batch of physicians in gynecology, uh, I'm hoping, are, are learning about the clitoral structure far more than they ever did.
1: You know, it's still not something that is covered as much in our anatomy textbooks as I would hope. Um, mm. but, uh, I think that whenever I teach students about, uh, female anatomy and mm. the sort of anatomy of the whole reproductive tract, it is definitely something that I try and incorporate just to give some, people some sort of appreciation for the, you know, major sexual organ that lies right underneath the surface, um, that most people never learn about in school.
0: Right. Yeah, that's the sad part. That's, yeah, that's the yeah. sad part is that in, even in medical schools, we're not, um, uh, there's hardly any classes on sexual pleasure or sexual wellness like yes you get some basic biology but unless you you yourself are interested as our doctor here is interested in in female sexual health you often uh have to go out and do the research on your own and take your own courses and and all of that right angela
1: Yeah, exactly. Like when I was in medical school, I think in total, maybe we had one or two lectures in total, uh, formal lectures, teaching about sexual health for both men and women. Um, And it was really something that I felt like I had to go seek as an extracurricular activity outside Mm. of my curriculum to learn more about.
2: And, you know, my husband who went through medical school in the 90s, um, I mean, an hour, you know,
0: of sexual health. <laughs> and so, I, I know, you know because I,
2: it's I like kind of amazing
0: actually. It, it is, it is actually. Um, I often get asked to speak here at some of our medical institutions to the residents, to interns, and residents, and it is the only hour, hour and a half that they get on uh, mm-hmm. on sexuality. So I know it. I know it firsthand. So, so that's got- why you know when you think
2: about. Just the ramifications of that singular fact of the ways in which, you know, the clitoral system, it, it's actually extraordinary. It's the only, you know, humans are the only species that have such a complex system designed for pleasure. Mm. right? And <laughs> it's not a pre, it's not a procreative system, you know, and you're talking about the highest number of nerve endings
0: in a yeah. system,
2: in a body, <laughs> you know. So it's like the idea that we that we withhold that information
0: you know sounds, you got to Sounds ask yourself, crazy. Yeah.
2: Like Wait. what like who's thinking that? And I think actually <laughs> men it, it takes <laughs> volumes to the fact it that does. you know when I talk about the vaginal biome you know, a lot of times, well, I mean, I could be at a, a very high level medical conference. Well, t- you can know, we? I'm
0: gonna I'm gonna have to cut you off right now because I want to spend more time, more serious time. Uh, we just have to cut to our uh, our traffic desk. Wendy Strager talking about vaginal biomes and our very own Dr. Angela Lee to answer your f- female sexual health questions at 514-800-614-800. Safe place to work out the kinks so, in any relationship. It's passion a- with CGAD eight hundred. So, Star- Dr. Lori Petito. The Vagina Dialogs tonight on the program, you recognize our theme song. Uh, we have uh, with us Dr. Angela Lee. She's a resident in obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Toronto. She answers your questions. So if you have any uh, questions about female sexual health, you can send them along at 514-800. And as a special guest, we have Wendy Strager, who is an educator and the founder of Good Clean Love. Uh, they, uh, they sell intimacy products and create intimacy products for female sexual Uh, health as well we've been talking about the vaginal biome so if men are listening why um, Wendy should men care about the health of their partner's vaginal biome
2: Uh, well on a medical level I think it's really important um, not only because there's some indication although there's a lot more research to do about it that you know an unhealthy vaginal biome may well impact a woman's arousal mechanism this is something that we're doing research with a really incredible researcher at University of Nebraska starting this year. But okay. even more profoundly than that, um, you know, when a woman is, uh, has bacterial vaginosis, she's 60% more susceptible to other much more serious STDs and HIV and the like, and three times as likely to transmit those infections to her partner. So, Mm. you know, when a woman's, you know, immune function is compromised, she's also compromising her partner's immune function, um, Mm. which makes sense, you know, especially in unprotected sex. So, right. um, So I think, you know, and whatever we just in the way that we care for each other, you know, when women are really unhappy and have lots of bouts of recurrent bacterial vaginosis, which is really extremely common. You know, it's one of the most common infections, if actually is the most common infection, and goes undiagnosed 80% of the time. So sometimes women will have odor from that. So that's actually mm-hmm. the telltale sign. Um, and then that really affects their self-esteem. So, you know, sexually anyway. And so so I think, you know, any time that a woman is feeling uncomfortable in her body, whatever, whatever part of that body she's feeling uncomfortable, you know, this this is important to her partner.
0: So how do we um, protect the biome? Now, I know like you guys at Good Clean Love make, uh, for example, lubricants that, um, with that in mind and, and things like that. Like, because some women will use other things for lubricants that could um, disturb the balance or, or the biome. What are yeah, your recommendations? Exactly
2: that- well, you know that's actually how all this research began. Early on in the United States, there was an NIH-funded study that's launched in about 2009 or 2010, when all the, you know, the the statistics on STDs and HIV was not going down despite the best efforts of of the government. And so they went to study the lubricants on the market, and that's when they discovered that the vast majority of them are what you call hyper osmolar it's kind of a mouthful and it's a it's an idea that many of us are only coming to understand but osmolality and maybe the doctor wants to explain this is the ways Mm -hmm. that we balance what's inside and outside of ourselves and so you know osmosis from 11th grade Mm -hmm. chemistry and so it's really important when it comes to sexual health because when you have products and whether that's a wash or a lubricant that's hyperosmolar what it's doing is kind of forcing the shedding of your epithelium your vaginal sort of top layer of cells which is your one of your primary defense mechanisms so you know what we really want to do always with any products that we add to our vaginal care is have products that are isoosmotic don't add or subtract any water don't cause any disruption like that hmm. and that's really where we focus our science
0: wow Super interesting, um, Dr. Lee. Do you have anything to add to that, or any questions for Wendy?
1: Um, no, I think she raises some really interesting points about um, like the com- the composition of her lubricant. Um, I was just wondering, kind of, when you look at the ingredients that you put into your uh, personal your uh, personal lubricants, what um, what do you typically use as the base of the lubricant?
2: Yes. Yeah, so that's a great question. And actually the truth is that there's not that many ways to make iso products because osmolality is based on the, the combination in the formulation of the of the chemical weights of all the ingredients. So, you know, one ingredient that's easy to point to that we know is 30 times heavier than our own human tissue or the mucus or the semen is propylene glycol so that we know that glycols are frequently uh, used in lubricant products, all kinds of glycols, propylene glycol most commonly, but also polyethylene glycol, um, and those are really chemically heavy. So, uh, so those like almost always will push a lubricant formulation to hyperosmolar. We actually make all of our products originally in a base of organic aloe, um, and most recently when we really got serious about biomatching, Um, and this was under the influence of this professor at Johns Hopkins University, we switched to hydroxyethyl cellulose because when they did a study in that study I I, I commented on earlier in uh, 2009 that came out in 2012, what they found is that uh, they created a buffer gel in the base of hydroxyethyl cellulose, which is a pretty inert product, so nobody was really reacting to that. And so mm. that's what we've moved to um, as a base of our products now. And then as we became more and more biomatched, which is really kind of the patented science, like I said, that we always turn back to and kind of use as a formative base in all, our form- in all of our foundational formulations, is like trying to match the salts to the existing salts. Like I mentioned earlier and right. <clears throat> never using fragrance or flavors. Right. Because right. every ingredient we add it has another the opportunity potential, to create right. irritation.
0: Yeah. It's interesting because I often speak to women who will go from lubricant to lubricant to lubricant trying to find the one that, that suits them, right? So I think I often often suggest the ones that have the least amount of things in them is probably the best ones. Okay. Uh, the ones that have um, a lot a lot of stuff in them, like fragrance and things like that may not be so good.
2: Um, no, actually many, many people react to fragrance. Um, uh, many, many people react to fragrance and exactly. In fact, the the women's voices of the earth, um, it did a really remarkable study of uh, vaginal washes. Um, and, um, really understood, you know, and they have tons of testimonials and documentation of just how, um, Bad. how badly that, impacts. <laughs> um, Absolutely. you know, the fra- fragrance is a toxicity pool all by itself, right? You could right. do I- everything else right. And you add fragrance, you know, which is just really noxious and you really yeah. start to have a big problem. Um, right. So that's why we never use fragrances in any products. And when right. we do have something, it's a flavor, like a food grade organic flavor. Right. Um, I, wanna just ask,
0: that- I wanna just ask Dr. Lee, um, how often do women come in and ask you about using mm-hmm. douches and things like that? Like are, are women still buying those things?
1: Um, You know, thankfully, no, I don't actually get that question as commonly as it used to come up, I think, mostly because I think media has done a good job of dispelling a lot of these myths about the vagina being dirty and needing to be cleaned.
0: So Mm -hmm. I think
1: it's actually been really positive in a lot of ways and sort of teaching a lot of women about the fact that douches are not necessary and, if anything, they're harmful for the the vaginal microbiome. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, uh, really it's just something that I don't even think should be sold anymore in stores. Uh, and they are
0: amazing that it is, isn't it? And, yeah. and I, I've yeah. been to the drugstore recently and there they are, they're still there and there are different, you know, not just one product, but several products. A whole and whole of
2: them. Yeah. Yes. No, I mean, like, it's so like, you know, 10 minutes ago, 1970s, right? Like uh,
0: <laughs> Totally. Yeah, you know. I, yeah, I want to. There. If people want to find out more, uh, where should they go, Wendy, for your? Um,
2: Well, you know, we actually sell quite a lot of products in Canada um, at all the major drug chains. So shoppers. um, Oh okay. uh, Rexall, um, Loblaws. We're in all major chains there. Um, Called Good Clean Love. Yeah, I'm really. But you know, in in, you're in Montreal, and so we're we have all those stores. Okay, good. So then you <laughs> Yeah, to we've be good got to all go. those. <laughs> yeah.
0: So the 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 line is good clean love. You can find out more about Wendy and goodcleanlove.com. Thank you so much Wendy. Certainly appreciate it. Appreciate your time. I uh, will have questions for Dr. Angela Lee, our obstetrician in house for the vagina dialogues coming up after we check in with our CJD 800 newsroom.
1: The following program contains mature subject matter. Listener discretion is advised.
0: From the pleasure and the politics to the hang-ups and the heartbreak, you're listening to Passions, CJED 800. Tonight to answering your questions on female sexual health is Dr. Angela Lee. She is a resident in obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of Toronto. She focuses on sexual health and family planning. Are you ready to take some questions, Dr. Lee? Absolutely. All right, we've got Diane on the line. Hi, Diane. Hello. Hi. Hi. What's your I was question, Diane?
2: Calling to ask about a lichen infestation. I've seen two gynecologists who both tell me that it's forever. There's no treatment for it, and I'm just wondering about the balance in the lower region. It seems okay. to be from the waist down front and back, and now it seems to be crawling over my hips.
0: Okay, um, so maybe you, you can wh- describe what that is, uh, Dr. Lee, also.
1: Yeah, so when you say like an in infestation, do you mean like in sclerosis, like in planets? Sorry?
0: Um, what, were you, you said, what were you diagnosed like, with, Diane? Lichen. Just lichen, not lichen sclerosis?
2: I, no. Uh, they just told me it was lichen, and it was not
1: treatable, and it was going to be forever. It's like flesh-eating disease. It's itchy and sore when I scratch it, scrapes the yeah. flesh off me. So what you're describing, Diane, sounds like lichen sclerosis. Um, so lichen sclerosis uh, is a condition that can affect um, women primarily who are postmenopausal. Um, so, what it is actually is um, rather than it being an infestation and thinking of it as an infection, it's more so similar to a chronic skin condition. Um, so, common symptoms are exactly what you've described having a lot of itching and associated pain and inflammation in uh, the area of the skin that you're scratching. Um, and then, oftentimes, it can spread if it's untreated. So the mainstay of treatment for lichen sclerosis is a topical corticosteroid, so basically meaning a steroid cream. Um, it is important to see a doctor. I know you mentioned that you've seen some people, but to get treatment for this because uh, if it does go untreated, it can lead to permanent changes in your vulvar anatomy. Okay. Okay. Isn't I have she better? So- too, and I so- notice it gets worse when my sugar is out of balance. Right. Oh, when- that- what is out of balance, sorry?
0: When her sugar. sugar is out of balance, her oh, sugar.
1: Balance. Okay. Um, I mean, I, I can admit that I know a ton about the association between blood sugars and lichen sclerosis, but um, I do know just the main safe treatment for it is the corticosteroid cream. So Corticone, I would um, is that what you said? Yeah, cortisone, exactly. So it's something like cortisone. Um, so we typically advise applying that regularly. And it is something that needs to be continued long term, enabled uh, in order to keep the lichen sclerosis in remission.
0: Isn't somebody like that supposed should go to see a dermatologist instead of a gynecologist?
1: Um, so it actually is a really common condition that a lot of uh, gynecologists see and treat regularly. Okay. Um, dermatologists, some are well-versed in uh, dermatological conditions that affect the vulva, but oftentimes that sort of area of medicine tends to fall towards gynecologists. Okay. So certainly the vast majority of gynecologists would be comfortable seeing you and treating you for a condition like lichen sclerosis.
0: So okay. ask for your, ask for these topical steroid creams, Diane, I think that's, uh, that's, that's okay. important. All right. Thank, thank you. you so much for calling and appreciate you call. Good luck with that. Uh, all right. And a, a texter wrote in about clitoral stimulation, isn't clitoral stimulation different for every woman? In my experience, some are far more sensitive than others. Yes, we're not all built the same. <laughs> Do you want to say something about that?
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think Dr. Laurie can comment on this too. So, um, you know, clitoral sensitivity is different and unique to every different person. Everyone's clitoral anatomy is different. Um, I think when you say clitoris, you're most likely referring to the glands of the, crit- the clitoris, which is the external part at the very top of your vulva. Mm-hmm.
2: Um,
1: so, I mean, different people like different forms of stimulation. Not everyone can tolerate direct stimulation to the clitoris because it is an extremely sensitive area. So some for, some, prefer... for some, for not some, not for, exactly. not for everybody. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So some people prefer indirect stimulation. Some people prefer direct. Um, so it's really a matter of personal preference.
0: Right, and some women have different clitoral hoods. You know, just like uh, yeah. a, an uncircumcised penis can look different, they don't all look the same. Some might have extra skin, some have, may have less. So we're all built a little bit differently. And the important thing is to ask whoever you're with the kind of stimulation that they uh, that they like. The other thing too is to remember that the clitoris is a is a much larger structure than just the glands of the clitoris that you see. So some women get some of get their stimulation from the, the, the part that uh, I guess surrounds the vaginal wall, the, on the both sides of the vaginal wall, the bulbs that are there. Some women prefer that kind of stimulation. Some women prefer pressure in that area, uh, a pressure against the shaft of the clitoris. So it's just hard to tell because obviously you're not seeing uh, with your eyes what's happening. <laughs>
1: Right. Exactly. And I actually was having an interesting conversation with a colleague earlier this week, um, and I was sort of asking them about how women experience sexual stimulation with penetrative intercourse after having things like vaginal surgery. And there's some schools of thought that are coming out that think a lot of the um, the sexual stimulation from penetrative intercourse actually might come from tugging of the labia minora, which was completely new to me and I had never uh, considered it, but. The thought was that from this giant clitoral complex, there is some kind of referred stimulation that comes from stimulation of the labia minora.
0: And also from the the vaginal walls, depending on the size of the vagina and the size of the penis and the, you know, there's a lot of anatomical pieces that fit. And obviously when you take two, Two pieces that 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 yes, they fit together, but they'll fit differently than, say, another two pieces and another two pieces. So it can be very different in terms of what uh, what feels right or for some women to have the clitoral, uh, more uh, orgasms through clitoral stimulation, some through uh, vaginal stimulation. And we know like there was a research done, I don't know if you're aware of this Dr. Lee, but there was research that showed that women who are more likely to have orgasms through penetration, the opening uh, vis-a-vis the clitoris there was a shorter Mm -hmm. distance between those two things. So we Mm -hmm. know there's an anatomical, like we're not all made the same anatomically. uh, And those little differences could account for why some people have and other people uh, don't. So, but there's so much more to know (laughs) so much more to know. (laughs) Oh my. Yeah. Uh, Coming up, we'll talk about, there's a question about multiple uh, orgasms. We'll talk about that. And another question about, uh, why doctors recommended uh, douching way back when. <laughs> I don't know if we can answer that, but we'll try. Uh, we've got Dr. Angela Lee here, our resident in obstetrics and gynecology, to answer your questions. It is the vagina dialogue, so get your questions in at 514 800. Passion with Dr. Lori Batito on CJAD 800. The Vagina Dialogues tonight, uh, answering your questions is uh, Dr. Angela Lee, a resident of obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Toronto. So here's a question that I'm not sure if you can answer, but we can try. Uh, What is the percentage of women able to orgasm four or five times in a row? Uh, So we're talking about women who are multiply orgasmic, which many are, although I don't have the numbers. I don't know if you've ever come across numbers like that?
1: Yeah, me either, unfortunately. I can't give you a good statistic, um, but, I mean, it definitely is possible. Um, I think, again, it's completely down. It's so multifactorial. There's anatomical variances that can account for it. There is situational differences that also account for, Mm -hmm. you know, the particular sexual encounters. So it's hard to give me... Sorry, it's hard to give you a a particular statistic, Um, but, I mean... I guess we do know that it's possible, um, although I would hazard a guess rare.
0: Right. Uh, I'm not sure how rare, I don't know if it's so rare, but of the women who are orgasmic and who allow themselves, see, I think it's looking at the women who are orgasmic versus the women who are not and how many of the orgasmic women are able to have multiple orgasms. And I would venture to say most can and sometimes do depending on, like you said, the circumstances, the context, who they're with, uh, what time of the month it is, uh, uh, how they're feeling. uh, how relaxed they are uh, and things like that. So there are many factors that are involved in this, but what we know is that all women are really capable of it. It's not like men where we need a refractory period, we don't, so it's a little bit different. So we are all uh, capable of doing that. Uh, If douching is not recommended, this person writes, then why did doctors recommend it to baby boomers back then and before? I don't recall hearing if issues about it back then. I I wonder what the thinking was. You know, it's like people create a problem to be able to sell a product kind of thing. So,
1: well, so originally vaginal douches were actually sold as a contraceptive. Um, That was initially what they were marketed as. And if you can believe it. Companies like Lysol, the companies that nowadays sell household cleaner, would market solutions not dissimilar from what you get today to disinfect surfaces in your house as vaginal juices. And oh it would be marketed as things that would be able to kill sperm, essentially, in the vagina. So that was where the whole origin of it came from, if you can believe it. I know, I was shocked. Yeah, Um,
0: also because we know know that people who use vaginal douching after intercourse, it actually pushes the sperm up. It it actually does the opposite. It doesn't doesn't flush it out or kill the sperm.
1: Exactly. And, I mean, if you think about how many millions to billions of sperm there are in a single ejaculation, there's no (laughs) way that we're going to be able to washed out all of the sperm with a douche. Um, So, I mean, obviously that myth was dispelled at some point. Um, And then, you know, I think that's when the marketing, again, because companies have a corporate interest in being able to market these Mm -hmm. products to women, the marketing changed to, um, you know, I, I view it as very sexist and kind of trying to convince women that there's a problem where there isn't. You know, right. trying smell to nice
0: things. right
1: exactly and that the vagina is an unclean place that needs to be cleaned and sterilized and all the evidence now thankfully we know now that it's completely contraindicated there's no good reason to do it and if anything it does a lot more harm um you know by it bal- uh, disrupting the delicate ph balance of your vagina so yeah. thankfully we have Gone. Much more on it now right. although so, you know- unfortunately it is still sold
0: well, it, it reminds me of the same same thing. You could you could put an ad for a douche next to an ad of a doctor smoking a cigarette. There were <laughs> ad, remember though. I, I, I mean, way back then there were ads. You know, uh, four out of five doctors recommend this cigarette. <laughs> so you know, there was a time when doctors were smoking cigarettes in there, uh, in you know, while they were seeing patients and and things like that. So uh, yeah, there you have it. <laughs> that tells that that should tell us a lot right there. Uh, yeah. Let's see. Do condoms with spermicide work? Um, work how? Condoms work in in and of themselves. I think if you're at there's an added protection when there's spermicide in there. Uh, so I would say yes, they work. What would you say?
1: Um, I would say they do. Um, some people don't like them though because they can uh, the, the spermicides can be quite irritating to the vagina. Okay. Um, so some people aren't able to tolerate the condoms that contain spermicides. Um, in general, though. I think the main advantage in terms of contraception that you're getting with any condom is realistically the barrier. If you think about it, if the condom doesn't break and it stays intact, there's really no need for the spermicide because in theory, the sperm shouldn't get outside the condom at all. Um, If anything, some types of condoms, depending on what material it's made out of, can actually be eroded by um, a, a spermicide. So it can actually potentially weaken the integrity of the condom.
0: Right. And, and I think that's the point, is that if you're using the, the condom as a barrier method, why do you need to kill the sperm? It's staying put, generally. Exactly.
1: exactly. Yeah. I think traditionally, back when um, contraceptives like diaphragms and sponges were used, the mm-hmm. spermicides were more so created to be used in, um, in conjunction with those. But I think a lot of those have sort of fallen out of favor. So um, you really don't see spermicides too often nowadays.
0: Have they fallen out because of what we were talking about earlier? Like, do they, do they, uh, uh, do they create uh, some kind of imbalance in terms of the vaginal
1: biome and all of that? Um, it's hard for me to comment exactly on that, but I think the more pressing reason why they've kind of fallen out of favor is because there's a lot more alternative contraceptives on the market nowadays, mm-hmm. um, ones that are a lot more effective, like the um, intrauterine uh, device, the IUD, Mm -hmm. Um, So I think we just have a lot more options nowadays where uh, those have kind of fallen out of favor. And I'm not sure if anyone listening has had previous experience with a diaphragm, but it used to have to be individually fitted to the person and the efficacy of it actually wasn't that great. It wasn't that great of a mode of contraception.
0: Right. We, we've come a long way, even in, in those regards. Uh, this uh, person writes, out of curiosity, if women no longer purchase douches as they once used to, then why are the shelves still continuously stocked up with them? Because I still think that uh, women buy into this uh, idea, just because it's sold to us, that somehow the vagina is smelly.
1: I think so too. And I think, you know, inherently everyone is you know, some people at the end of the day are still going to be worried about that and still, you know, despite what evidence says, think that it's something that they need or want to do. Um, So I think that's why there's ultimately still a market for these products.
0: Right. No use for them, though. You do not need them. We're telling you that right here. Dr. Angela Lee, thank you so much. Um, We will catch up with you in uh, January. So happy new year. And uh, we'll, we'll see you in the new year. Thank you. You too. Thanks for having all right. me again. Thank you for your expertise. Love it. Uh, thank you all for your questions. Do appreciate it. Thanks to our technical producer tonight, Dave Simon. You can connect uh, with me uh, easily through my website, drlaurie.com, D-R-L-A-U-R-I-E.com, where you will also find all the podcasts of past shows if you click on the Passion Radio tab. Coming up next here on CJD, we bring you the CTV National News. Have a great rest of the evening. Stay safe and remember to live your life with passion.